Hi, this is Professor of Photography Jeff Curto, and welcome to class session number one of History of Photography, a survey course dealing with the history of one of the most important media in the modern world, a medium that changed the way we saw the world both visually and culturally. This first class session acts as an introduction to concepts in the course, and we take a look at some of the basic ideas that we'll cover throughout our 15-week semester. After this first class session, you'll find that the next couple of class sessions offer a sort of skeletal overview of the history of the medium, and then after that, we dip into individual topics, looking at things like portraiture and travel photography, and examining how those ideas not only changed over time, but also changed the way we perceived our world. Each class session has the visuals that were used and projected to the class in, embedded in the video uh, for each class, so you can follow along with the visuals as well as the audio component of the classroom sessions. I hope you enjoy the course, and here we are joining our class in progress. Well, welcome to History of Photography. I'm Jeff Curto. This is a conceptually based course, not a fact-based course. I'm more interested in having you learn how to think about the history of the medium and how to apply those thoughts to what you do as photographers every day. So um, I'm hoping to have, give you an in-depth study of the history of the medium that will enable you to analyze and see patterns, create personal ideas rather than some sort of random set of unexamined hand-me-down notions. So I'm aiming to prepare you to make sense of the world and maybe make meaning out of this world of the history of photography, become a producer of meanings rather than a consumer of meanings. So that's my, uh, that's my overall objective. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like you to just sort of sit back. Don't worry about taking notes. Put your pencil down. You'll pick it up when I put the important name and date <laughs> up here. All right, it'll be right about here. Right about there, all right? Just sit back for a little bit and sort of imagine that, you know, you didn't have to drive to campus today. You didn't have to fight for a parking space and, you know, that forget about the fact that we had this sort of brutal, cold, miserable winter thing that was supplanted by a sort of spring-like time a few days ago, and now we are here back in the, the depths of winter. So I want you to travel back in time. Travel back in time with me to the 19th century, more than uh, 150 years. Actually, I want you to travel back about 175 years. I want you to travel back to December of 1838. December of 1838. So in December of 1838, in England, Queen Victoria had ruled this massive British Empire, a massive empire that had arms that reached out literally all over the world, around the entire planet. And she'd only ruled this massive British Empire for two years, Queen Victoria. Big Ben, the clock in London, had just been keeping time for that city uh, for about six months in December of 1838. A young man named Charles Dickens, had just given us the final installment of his serialized novel, Oliver Twist. Oliver Twist joined Hans Christian Andersen's third volume of fairy tales containing The Little Mermaid and The Emperor's New Clothes as some of the most important and popular literature of the day. 
people who were listening to music were listening to the music of contemporary composers like Beethoven, Berlioz, Schubert, and Donizetti. We are in an era of art and music and culture that becomes known as the Romantic period. The Romantic period. Here on our shores, the Erie Canal has been open for 13 years, 13 short years. And because of it, Great Lakes shipping trade is booming. And what happens is that small Midwestern cities like Chicago begin to become so much more important because now we are a channel to the West. We're able to transport goods from the East to our central location. A young man who would later change his given name of Samuel Langhorn Clemens celebrated his third birthday in Hannibal, a town in the 17-year-old state of Missouri. There are some rumblings that we can hear across the North American continent, a continent that is largely unpopulated. And if we listen closely, we can hear that some of those rumblings are voices. And those voices are voices of Americans who are beginning to debate some questions about our newly won freedom. Many people here in these 25 United States in December of 1838 are concerned about whether our country truly is free if one in every seven Americans is owned by another. That rumbling hasn't erupted into a full-blown roar. It will. But there's another sound, another sound that is drowning out that rumbling, and that's the sound of machinery. The sound of machinery because while uh, the rest of the world has begun to do this, here in America we're really grabbing on to the Industrial Revolution. And so the sound of machinery driven by steam powering us forward into a new age of mechanism and machines that accomplish work is happening. With the Industrial Revolution comes a shrinking of the world. Railroads and steamships and canals make travel to distant parts of the globe far easier, far better, far faster than they ever have been before. People are traveling farther and seeing more than they've ever seen before. And as they do that, their trust, their belief in the reality of painted and drawn and written descriptions of the way the world looks begins to diminish. They begin to think about it in a different way. Because once you've seen that thing, the painting or drawing that you've seen of it beforehand really doesn't quite hold the same kind of authority visually. The desire for reality is rampaging all over the world. And into this world is born the medium of visual representation and expression of photography. So in December of 1838, there are no photographs, none. No billboards, no babies on bare rugs, no family snapshots. There are no photographs. But suddenly, in January of 1837, 1839, I'm sorry, January 7th of 1839, just 175 years ago, January 7th of 1839, a Frenchman named Daguerre, a Frenchman named Daguerre announces to the French Academy of Sciences that his experiments with sensitive, light-sensitive compounds have led to the invention of the first photographic process. The first photographic process. A process that he humbly calls the daguerreotype. Is that the five points? 
That's it. What's intriguing about Daguerre is that his announcement that particular January isn't the only one. Because what happens is that once Daguerre's announcement travels across the English Channel, an English guy named Fox Talbot, who has figured out a way to make photographic images, also announces his process. He humbly originally calls his the Talbot type. It differs from Daguerre's process in that Daguerre gives a singular, one-of-a-kind image. Think Polaroid pictures. Whereas Fox Talbot's produces a laterally or tonally reversed image from which an infinite number of paper positives can be printed. January of 1839, 175 years ago. Despite the multiple printmaking capacity of Fox Talbot's process, Daguerre's earlier announcement and the technical superiority of Daguerre's amazingly clear, incredibly crisp images captures the fancy of a world that is instantly fascinated by these pictures. The infinite detail in the daguerreotype and the extreme accuracy of the photographic image in general astonish and delight the public. Never before have people seen pictures even remotely like these. It's as if nature's skin had literally been peeled off, and there it is, held in the palm of your hand. No one had ever conceived that images like these were even possible. One critic wrote, we can find no language to express the charm of these pictures painted by no mortal hand. We are told that the shop windows in Paris, in which the photographic pictures are exhibited, are so beset by the crowd that the streets are impassable in their vicinity. In one month, from December of 1838 to January of 1839, the world has gone from absolutely no photographs to a literal explosion of photography. Suddenly, photographs are everywhere. Photography changed the world radically, quickly, and completely. It's one of the most critical inventions of the 19th century and certainly the most important development of 1839. Let's return now to our 21st century reality and take stock of where photography is with respect to our history. Histories of photography generally take one of a couple of different paths. They either look at the optical, chemical, technological part of photography and examine how photography literally developed over time through the chemicals and through the technology of the machines and the equipment that photographers used. And in that case, they usually devote very little time and energy to technological, uh, from technological concerns to aesthetic concerns. Or histories of photography have dealt only with the aesthetics, the beauty of the pictures, or the lack of beauty of the pictures, and spend very little time looking at the technology. And I think a, a useful history of photography achieves a subtle synthesis of those two things, of science and vision, of art and commerce. 
And it's kind of surprising in a way, especially those of you who raised your hands that you've studied the history of art or the history of anything else. It's sort of surprising that a study of the history of something that's only 175 years old should be that complex. I mean, compared to the arts of painting or drawing or music or any of those other kinds of expressive media, this is a really short period of time. But the fact is, photography became an international craze so rapidly and an accepted art form so recently that the historian, that's you, is confronted by a chaos of imagery. Incoherent, incognito, and innumerable. There's all of these pictures out there. How do we make sense of them? Because contained in photography's capacity for the endless multiplication of one person's vision was the shrinking of the world. The photograph was as much a form of transportation as the railroad, or the steamship, or the canal. Great works of art, monuments of ancient civilizations, evidences of empire, and the family life of neighbors became tangible, became accessible to everyone. They expanded the field of view for everyone, but they contracted the field of the imagination. Because those works of art and evidences of empire, etc., facts of life, were diminished in mystery by their multiple existences in replica. Reality seemed a lot less imposing, less important than the photographic image. The fact became discardable after it was recorded using one of these processes. We see this, I think, every time we see tourists take pictures of themselves. They stop in front of a monument, you know, the Bean downtown Chicago, take a picture, race off to the next stop on the tour. The actual details of the object will be contemplated later, if ever. People come, people see, people photograph. So the fact may be discardable or at least postponable after it's been recorded by the photographic process. The 18th century, so remember that this is the 1700s before when we're talking about. The 18th century was thought of as being a time when logical, rational thought was prized above all else. And for that reason, it was often called the age of reason, rational thought, philosophical, social, literary ideas were considered the most important things for man's intellectual development. One of the primary ideas in our course is that photography was and is one of the most important forces of cultural and artistic modernism. And introducing that idea is a quote from a guy named William Evans, Jr., who was curator of prints like etchings and lithographs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And he wrote, the 19th century would, be, would begin by believing that what was rational was true, and it would end up by believing that what it saw a photograph of was true. Let's just think about that for a second. The 19th century would begin by believing that what it saw a photograph of was true. But it wind up, I'm sorry, 19th century would begin by believing that what was rational was true but it would end up by believing that what it saw a photograph of was true. Imagine that sort of mind shift of the way in which people considered the difference between what was intellectually important, what was rational, to what was pictured. Really, really important bit to kind of consider and think about. 
One of the problems that we have to confront as art historians, as historians of photography, is the undiscovered quality of the history of the medium. Substantial bodies of work by significant photographers are often found. Large numbers of anonymous images that we can't attribute to any given photographer are out there and unattributable. And when we look at all of the imagery that we can find in our textbook or in photo history sites on the web, or certainly on our screen up here starting next week, what we're looking at is the tip of a very, very vast iceberg. We're looking at a huge piece of the puzzle by looking at just a tiny bit of what that puzzle might really be. A great masterpiece of photography may be sitting in a shoebox in your grandmother's attic. Countless other masterpieces of photography are lost to the wrecking ball or otherwise well-meaning spring cleaners. Another problem that we have as photo historians is that all photographs are affirmed as equal. This is sort of a different thing in the world of the, the history of creative enterprise. Every photograph made is considered to be an equal of every other photograph made, maker and maker's intention notwithstanding. Images from family albums and newspapers and magazines oftentimes hang side by side on gallery walls with the art conscious imagery of Alfred Stieglitz and Ansel Adams and Edward Weston. Newspaper, commercial, and family snapshooters, though, seem to share an intense interest in originating objects or subjects and an indifference about expression. For example, it's your father's image in the picture that you make of him that's important, not whether your skill as a photographer is or is not evident. Photographs themselves are like relics, religious or otherwise. They are filled with the poignance of the loss of the subject. Like pieces of a true cross, the bones of a favorite saint, a lock of hair from a departed lover, someone came, someone saw, and someone kept something that allowed them to connect with that distant, lost past. Someone came, someone saw, someone photographed, something remains. And just as the impact of those relics changes over physical, emotional, or temporal distance, so does the impact of a photograph. Because the meaning of a photograph, as we'll discover, is absolutely unstable. A photograph that we'll look at now in the 21st century that was made then in the 19th century may have had a completely different meaning then than it does to us now. And we have to figure out how to approach that difference in meaning. The concept of originality is another problem that we have to deal with. The real question is, can any photograph be original if the central tool in photography is a copying machine? Is there anything such as an original photograph? The photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson, who we'll look at, talked about his subjects as being continually vanishing his pictures depended on the transient moment. Another photo, problem, photo history problem is the very nature of the image. In the early years of the medium of photographer, the camera was turned toward everything. Everything, people, realities, both exotic and commonplace, nature, and no new sources of subject matter were ever to be found. Creation turned out to be relatively finite. Photography exhausted it all rather rapidly. 
all the possibilities that have ever existed in photography in terms of subject matter were articulated in the first 30 years of the medium's existence. And every photograph that you or I or any other photographer has made since about the 1870s has been variation on a theme. All we're doing is repeating the things that have already been photographed. And photography then violates one of the other problems that we have to deal with in the history of anything. Photography has no primitive period. None. It has no photographic equivalent of cave paintings. There's no photographic equivalent of the Iliad or tribal chants or any of those kinds of things. If we were to take the basic chemical technology that these two guys worked with, and we were to take them and put them down the hall in our regular traditional black and white darkroom, they would be perfectly at home. That technology is the same basic technology that they were working with. And in our digital age, the technology really hasn't changed that much. It's just the recording mechanism that's changed. It's still light. It's still volume of light. And it's still time of light. And it's visually apparent from images from the 1840s and 1850s. The daguerreotype is still unsurpassed in terms of image quality. There are no photographic processes that have ever been invented that are as high quality as the daguerreotype. Not one. Doesn't matter how many megapixels you have, the daguerreotype is better. Early photographic processes achieve tonal nuances that are unapproachable by modern methods. And as an affirmation of the level of sophistication of some of these early methods, we can look at how many people are using 19th century processes in today's world. And our present world in photography is a confusing one as well. Here we are living in a world that is obsessed by image, photographic and otherwise. The camera, which has long shown us pictures of things that we want to see, along with things that we don't want to see, is now compelled to show us a picture of everything, whether we want to see it or not, and everything is everything. The camera shows us pictures of everything. All we need to do is look at Instagram or Tumblr, right? It's showing us pictures of everything. What are we to do when the camera pushes itself so far in search of celebrity or fame that allows in innocent bystanders and innocent people to be hurt or possibly even killed? I blame the machine, not the operator. Without the machine, the facts would be circumstantial at best and wouldn't draw our attention in the same way. The machine draws us in and asks. Actually, it demands that we look. We look at what's there. The camera makes us look at what's there. Intriguingly, this situation isn't new. We only have to look at the huge archive of photographs of the glories of the Third Reich, or conversely at the widely circulated photograph that Abraham Lincoln said got him elected president, to find other examples of situations where images changed people's lives and altered the course of history. The photographer and novelist and essayist Wright Morris wrote, the camera's eye and the mind's eye share a vision that has imposed itself on this century. Photographs now confirm all that is visible. 
and photographs will affirm what is one day remembered. Human affairs have not been quite the same since the first images formed on plates of copper, but after a century and a half, we are still uncertain if it is more or less what Samuel Beckett described as a stain in silence. Whatever it is, look for the camera's roving eye to get the picture. And a final problem for us to confront is the future of our history. Not just the present of our history, excuse me, but the future of our history. Here we are, right in the solid middle, maybe middle end of the digital era, the middle end of the revolution in a way. Computers now accomplishing everything that could ever be accomplished in the darkroom and more. Mistakes erased, details changed, cameras that don't use film being able to transmit electronically, instantaneously across the globe. The camera never lies, but the camera, which as we'll discover has always lied to a certain degree, now can tell whoppers. Whole images can be faked or enhanced. How do we deal with that? Historically, photography has always been about the most advanced imaging technology, about making pictures easier, better, faster, and cheaper. And digital photography is just another chapter in the story that we'll see repeated over and over throughout the history of the medium. It's just another piece of a puzzle. To us, it feels like the most radical piece. And it is, in fact, a very radical change. But there are other radical changes that happened before. Because as we'll see, the same thing that happened with flexible film and color photography and instant Polaroid photography and a host of other technologies. There were tons of photographers who laughed out loud at photographers who were going to use 35 millimeter cameras, film cameras, to make professional photographs. A toy camera like that can never make a professional photograph, they said. Photographers are traditionally slow to change, but we always do. And lest we think that we can find some refuge in the technical solution, like looking at the technical history of photography, we can look at uh, a book written by a guy named Henry Snelling. Henry Snelling wrote a book called The History and Practice of the Art of Photography, which he published in 1849. History and Practice of the Art of Photography. And after recounting the experiments of Daguerre and Fox Talbot and acknowledging their pioneering roles in the new art, he provided an intriguing, unsubstantiated, but intriguing account of a young man named James Waddles. A plucky lad of 16 off in the American wilderness of New Harmony, Indiana, who may have made and fixed an image of the camera on a piece of sensitized writing paper in 1828, claiming to achieved essentially Fox Talbot's invention long before Fox Talbot announced his invention to the world. So could all the current history of photo books be wrong? Could Snelling be right in his 1849 book that photography was really invented by some Hoosier kid? If it had been invented by a Hoosier kid, it probably wouldn't have changed anything about the assimilation of photography into our culture. Before class, I had a little sort of rolling reel of descriptions of photographs rolling on the, on the projection screen. And uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting about doing that was that many of you conjured up exact images of those images. 
some of them specific images to the history of the medium, some of them specific to you. But even if you only knew one image, the fact that you could summon that kind of visual facsimile of that picture is a testament to the power of the medium. So tomorrow, when you wake up, try to imagine the world before January 7th of 1839. Try and remember, try and think of what that world of 1838 would have been like, a world with no photographs. And try to count all of the photographs that you see and process and discard in that time that you are awake tomorrow, from the time that you wake up to the time that you go to sleep. You'll probably stop counting just after your first cup of coffee. And you'll discover how much a part of the, our world, this young medium of photography, is. So for the next bunch of weeks as we explore photography's history together, try to keep in perspective the profound significance of a medium that is at the same time so tremendously powerful and so tremendously young. This is not a long history that we're talking about. And it's hard, but we have to ignore the fact that we're bombarded by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands sometimes, of images every day. And we have to learn to isolate ourselves in order to kind of realize the amazement that somebody may have found when they beset the streets in Paris to, to be impassable. Impassable, because they were so fascinated by this technology. So we are a photographic society, and our aim is to figure out how that came to be, and also to sort of see what it might mean uh, for all of us. So thanks for coming. We'll see you next week. <laughs>